if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, um, we will be reading passages out of Deuteronomy 27 through 29. The vast majority of that will be spent in Deuteronomy 28, but we will be talking about 27 and 29. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about curses. And usually when we say that word, uh, what we immediately think of are four-letter words that are not to be spoken of in in good and noble company. Um, And that is the way that the vast majority of us use that word today. When we say curse, we mean profanity. We don't mean the type of cursing that we find here. As a matter of fact, the type of cursing that we find here, for the most part, is left to sort of witch doctor, eastern magical power, mystical type of stuff that we find in movies, for instance, like the mummy that came out is under a curse, right? This is the kind of cursing that we think of. It's fictional and it's fantastic and it's not something that we typically engage with. We think of that as nothing more than superstitious. But today we are actually talking about curses and it's important to know that the Bible actually upholds curses as an important thing. When the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were walking through the land of Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, looked out and he saw them coming and had seen what they had done to several people and so he went and he got himself a prophet and he told the prophet, I will give you a lot of money if you will utter a curse against the people of Israel. Now what it seems like should have happened was God simply shrug and say, well, I don't understand why this would even matter because if he calls down a curse on them, it's not like it's terribly important because I've blessed them and I won't follow that. And we know that God is God over heaven and earth, but that is not actually what happens in Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, when Balaam is told to go pronounce a curse over Israel, God shows up to him and says specifically to them in Numbers 22:12, you shall not go with the men, you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now, God has other reasons to do that, but what is very clear in that is God took the blessing and the cursing even of his people very importantly. As a matter of fact, as Balaam in that tries to open his mouth three times, the king of Moab pays him, and three times, instead of cursing the people of Israel, he blesses the people of Israel. It is an important thing to be cursed and to be blessed. And we have that then in Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29. As we go to Deuteronomy 27, we find that it looks and sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 11, where at the end of which Moses says that I am setting before you a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from them the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. As we go to chapter 27, which we're not going to read, but we will summarize very clearly, Moses has finished his larger sermon to the people and is now instructing them. Chapter 27 is not something that is happening, but chapter 27 is Moses telling the people something that will happen. When you go into the land, half of you are going to go to Mount Gerizim and half of you are going to go to Mount Ebal and you will write down and you will place the curses there and the priests will speak the blessings to Mount Gerizim and they will speak the curses to Mount Ebal. But he tells them specifically in verses 16 through 26 the curses that are to be announced. And we are to understand these curses as nothing more than a summary of the actual curses that are given. These are not all of the curses that are given. But chapter or verse 26 makes it very clear. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, 
amen. It is a reenactment of the covenant, and it is an acknowledgement that we need to do everything that God has commanded us today, or we are under a curse. The question becomes, as we read through this, what is the curse, which happens to be explained to us in chapter 28, but what is the relation of this curse to everything else? Uh, how are we supposed to know what this blessing and this cursing actually looks like? And, and how are we to relate it to what happens in the rest of Scripture? So Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29 are not only a fitting conclusion to all of Deuteronomy as they come to an end of the sermons of Moses, but they are a fitting conclusion to the Pentateuch as a whole. So we have talked about a long, long time ago how the Pentateuch was really one book. It's always treated as one book. It is the book of Moses which occurs kind of in five parts, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they all are fit together as one book. So these verses, these particular chapters are not just ending Deuteronomy, they are ending the entirety of the Pentateuch. And so to understand better what it means to be under a blessing and under a curse, we need to go back to the beginning of the Pentateuch and talk through yet again Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. In Genesis 1, we read that God has indeed blessed the people. He has made Adam, he has made Eve, and he blesses them. In Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in Genesis 1, 27, we read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God creates man in his image. Male and female, he creates them. They live in perfect harmony, not only with one another, but with the beasts of the fields and the plants on the ground, and even with God himself. He makes them in his image. Everything is working as it should, and he blesses them. That is, this is literally the blessed state. This is Eden. This is perfection. This is what it means to live in the blessing of God. It does not take long, then, before we find the curse. In Genesis 3, after the snake comes to the woman, lies about what God has said, the woman Eve takes and eats the fruit, she hands it to Adam, he takes and eats. God knows what has happened and he curses the serpent, which is not terribly important for this, but he does also curse the woman and the man. And he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. These are the extent of the curses that are given to both Eve and to Adam for what they have done. Now, it's, it's easy and possible to read those verses and think that what's actually happening here is not 
terribly different than what we do when we discipline our kids or we discipline somebody else, right? So if somebody does what is wrong, we punish them for it and we make life harder on them. We discipline them for it. As parents, we don't call it punishment, we call it discipline, but it's the same thing. And, and we, we penalize them for it. So if you do what is wrong in the world, you'll be penalized for it, you'll be put in jail. It's easy to read these verses and say, okay, so to the woman, God is giving her penalties. She is going to have increased pain and toil and childbearing and she will want to, to have desire for her husband, but he will rule over her. For the man, it is about nature. He is now going to have to work very hard to get food for him and his wife and his family from the ground, which would have naturally on its own just yielded itself to him. Now by the sweat of his brow, he will have to do it and he will die. Eventually, he will turn back into the dust from which he has come. It's easy to read that and to think that what's actually happening here is God is disciplining people by making life difficult on them. That is that they stayed basically neutral in all of it. The Adam and Eve are kind of the same people that Adam and Eve were before. The only major difference is now life is harder for those people. Certainly the curses in Genesis 3 do not indicate that it has to be anything else. But as we read further in the narrative, we understand that the narrative is clearly describing what has happened from the curse. And the curse is more than just a penalty that is paid to people, but it is a penalty that has radically affected who they are. Immediately in Genesis chapter 4, after Adam and Eve have been removed from the garden, we find Cain and Abel, Cain fighting against Abel and eventually murdering him. We find in chapter 5 the repetition of the ge- in the genealogy of and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Genealogies don't have to include that. Go and read the genealogy in Matthew. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. It says nothing about death in Matthew, yet Genesis can't help but repeat the refrain, death, 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 death has happened. And then when we come to Genesis chapter 6, The Lord, in verse 5, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That is, it, it appears, frankly, as though the curse, whatever has happened in the garden, did not just make life hard on people and keep them basically neutral. It changed fundamentally who they were. They were now cursed. Not simply that nature was hard on them, but they went from a blessed state to a cursed state. The curse existed over them and it worked its way through them now. We see then that it is another's disobedience that brings the curse. It is, of course, our disobedience as well, but we should not think of the curse as something that we enter into, but more like something we are born into. It is part and parcel of who we are. We are under a curse. Our very nature is under a curse. And it is because of what Adam has done that we find ourselves cursed before God. It becomes all the more important then as we come to Deuteronomy. When we hear this speech about blessings and curses, that we realize that we are not just cursed, but that God is speaking of bringing blessings to his people. As a matter of fact, this is then the culmination of what happens in Genesis 12, which given all of the events that's happened before in Genesis, stands as a bright light in a very, very dark book. When God all of a sudden looks at Abram and he says, I will bless you. 
before there have been curses, there have been murder, there has been flood and destruction. There has even been Job, or excuse me, Noah, who was not, not the perfect man, but even through him, God picks out Abraham. And he says, Abram, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you all of the inheritance that you could ever possibly dream of, and I will bless the world through you. This blessing, then, is nothing less than the undoing of the curse. So by the time we come up to chapter 28, when Moses is prepared to talk about the blessings and the curses that are being given, the blessing is the reestablishment of Eden in Israel. And the curses should be seen as nothing less than a return to that which is prominent in all of the world. And what do we find? We find, too, obedience undoes the curse. God clearly says in chapter 28, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. The continual refrain is, if you do what I'm asking, if you do what I'm commanding, if you are obedient, there will be blessings poured out upon you. There will be blessings. We will read the first 14 verses of chapter 28. Beginning in verse 2, if, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and of the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in, and blessed shall be you shall be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven. The Lord will command the blessing on you and in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and never down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods and serve them time and time again. If you obey the commands of God, these blessings will come back to you. Notice the kinds of blessings these are. Not only are they blessings, so just simply given the blessings in general, we have the overturning of the three things that seem to be prominent in the curse. The three things that are prominent in the curse are that the people are removed from the presence of God. There is now enmity between man and God. There is distance between man and God, and man cannot get back to God. There is a distance that is built there, and there is enmity that is built between man and God. They have not done what he has commanded. In man, not only in Cain and Abel, but later on the violence that permeates the earth is a demonstration that the curse mean that men are at war against other men. And not only that, but nature as well. 
is no longer will man simply eat the fruit of the ground, but he'll have to work very hard for it. And in these blessings, we have the overturning of all of that. The land now seems to basically walk up to the people of Israel and provide them. The harvest will be bountiful. Their barns will overflow. There will be rich blessings in the kneading bowl and in the barns. No matter where you go, there is an overflow of abundance for the people of God. This is the same land that Moses has described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's simply we, we know better than that, right? Land does not simply produce milk and honey. It's not the land that does this, right? It's bees and cows. Why does he call the land flowing with milk and honey? Because it's like it just comes out of the ground. It, it's so plentiful. It's like water around here recently, right? It just happens. He talks then even about the people around them, that they will come against Israel, but they will be pushed back as, as men Following the law will love the neighbors themselves, as we've talked about the first four commandments or five commandments, basically the first three or four, however you want to number them, were about the relationship between the people and God. The last half of the commandments were about how men are to relate to one another. As Jesus says, the greatest commandment is that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. If they are doing the commands that within the people of Israel, there will be peace among men. And what God is promising them is that no one will come near you. They will stay away. I will give you peace at your borders. There won't be any more fighting within this Eden that I am creating. There will be peace among men. This obedience will bring about something of an Eden, a new peaceful kingdom on the earth, and people will flock to it. However, disobedience reaffirms the curse. While obedience undoes the curse, disobedience reaffirms the curse. It doesn't restate it. It doesn't restate it because everyone, even Israel, was in that cursed state that God was going to bring them out of and bless them. But nevertheless, if they prove themselves to be disobedient, they will reaffirm the curse. And it doesn't take much to see how Moses feels about this. There is never an instance where we can say that Moses seems to be fairly optimistic about Israel's chances here. He doesn't ever seem fairly optimistic about their chances. In chapter 27, what does he tell the Levites to say? The Levites are not to look at the people on Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings there. The blessings are there. They will be written there, but the Levites aren't to talk about the blessings. Instead, all he focuses on are the curses that you are to make sure the people know for being disobedient. Even in this chapter, we read 14 verses worth of blessing. We will now turn and read 54 verses of cursing. Simply given the amount of space devoted to this, you get the sense that Moses is really laboring hard to say, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Picking up in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and of the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are 
entering to take possession of. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat any of it. Your donkey, will be rest- your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be taken and given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all the day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground, And all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have ever known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. You shall become a horror a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity." The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle, 
and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. And it also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all of your land. They shall besiege you in all of your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb and the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because she is lacking everything. She will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you in all your towns. If you are not careful to do all the words of the law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and all your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and a failing eye and languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, If only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel, and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. That is indeed a frightening set of curses for the people of Israel. No doubt after reading the blessings, hopefully you heard how a number of those blessings were turned on their heads. Your enemies will come against you one way and they will flee before you seven ways. You will be the head, they will be the tail. You will be lifted higher and higher and they will be lifted lower or they will be sunk lower and lower. And yet in the curses, all of that is reversed. There is general cursing in verses 15 through 19, but we can see these three depictions, nature, our enemies, and even our condemnation before God placed before us in these curses. There's pestilence, wasting disease, fever, inflammation, heart, drought, blout, blight, mildew. 
in verses 21 through 22. 23 through 24, there's no rain. The heavens are iron. They don't give you anything but powder. And the land won't yield any fruit because it's nothing but iron. Your enemies will defeat you. You and your king will go and serve somebody you don't know. A foreign nation will bring God's punishment upon you. Others, others will consume all you have. No doubt this, by the way, is a reference back in all of this to Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does he say? You will plant, you will have a wife, someone else will take her, you'll have a vineyard, something else will eat it. In Deuteronomy 6, we read this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. In other words, you are going to go into a land that's already been cultivated. I've allowed the Canaanites to stay there so that it could be cultivated for you. When God then turns around and says, your enemies will take all that you have done, what is he saying? I will treat you like I treated the Canaanites. You are no better to me than them. And matter of fact, the curse then sinks them back to the place where everyone else in the world is. If you don't want to be my people, you won't be my people. You will be just like everyone else under the curse. Even from God, they are confusion. The boils and plagues of Egypt, which again, God has paid to their enemies. He will then pay to them. There will be tumors, madness, blindness. Not only will others take what they have given, but nature itself will eat what they have done. Worms and crickets and locusts will eat the produce instead of getting it. In verses 52 through 57, there is total and absolute defilement. A nation will come upon you. And while as I butchered the people of Canaan, because they offered their children as sacrifices to a fire into Moloch in chapter 12, And in chapter 18, Moses goes over this again. Now we find even the most civil and refined people in Israel eating their own children. At the end, there is nothing left but a total abandonment of God's promises. I will take you back to Egypt. You were as numerous as the stars of the sky, as I promised to Moses or excuse me, to Abram. I promised him that he would have more descendants than he would even be able to count. Yet there will be few of you left. I will wipe you off the face of the map. The curses do not mean, and the blessings do not mean that the people of Israel were neutral. The people of Israel were just like everybody else. And the blessing that God wanted to give was a restoration of what he found in Eden. The curses mean that they are just like everybody else. They're just like you and me before we knew Christ. Disobedience then reaffirms the curse. It does not make a new one. The good news, however, is that there is another whose obedience breaks the curse. Why is it then that Israel can't do this. The laws aren't terribly hard, frankly. We've talked about them. They're there. Moses says, you don't have to go up to heaven and call down the law. You don't have to go into the depths of the sea and and figure out what's going on. It's near you. It's in your ears. It's It's in your midst. It's in your possession. You know what the law is. You know what God is commanding for you. Why don't you just do it? 
I'm providing for you life and, and death, blessing and curse, and you continue to choose death and you continue to choose curse. Why do you do that? Chapter 29 is nothing but, again, the reestablishment of the covenant. They are reaffirming their connection to the covenant, but Moses gives us an important indication as to why the people cannot keep the law. In verses 2 and down, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants in the land, and the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He says, you saw it, but you haven't seen it yet. You don't understand what it is that you've looked at. You don't, you hear my words, but you're not hearing them. There, there is a, a problem with you. You have problems. It's not, it's not just that you are neutral and that God has made things difficult for you. It's that something fundamentally has gone wrong with who you are. Moses looks at them knowing who these people are, knowing the great sights that they've seen, knowing the words of instruction that they've heard, and his only recourse is to look at them and say, there is something wrong with you. You can't fix this. Because God has not given you a heart to understand. He hasn't given you eyes, and he hasn't given you ears. The problem with the law is that it simply tells us what to do. It says you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The problem is that the law can't do anything for you but tell you. It tells you what you must do, but it gives you absolutely no power to do that. It cannot make you love God. It can only tell you to love God. It cannot make you love doing what is right. It can only tell you to do what is right. The law lacks any power. The only power that is in, that's given to the law is the power of condemnation. That's it. It can only bring death, not because it is bad, but it is good, only because it cannot affect you where you need to be affected in your affections. It cannot kindle love for God cannot change hearts and minds and thoughts. We read in Romans 5 that there is a solution for this. Verses 12 through 17, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death was spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Adam messed all of us up. That's what Paul is saying. The problem in Israel, the problem in Canaan, the problem in China, 
the problem in Africa, the problem in the United States is not that some cultures are better than others. It's not that some people have a better compass of right and wrong. It is that every single one of us have been messed up by Adam to where we cannot do what the Lord requires. We can fake it. We can look better. We can polish ourselves up so that we are closer to it. But the final analysis is none of you love the Lord your God the way you have to, to fulfill his commandments the way he has commanded you to. Adam has left you unable to do it. And therefore all die. But just as Adam has messed you up, Christ makes you right again. So while another's sin has brought the curse upon us, another's obedience brings life to us. We read this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, we, we all suffered from the same disease. Christians are no different than anyone else in this. We're not better than anyone. We were just like them, Paul says. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is the gracious gift of God to make you alive again, to give you a beating heart, a heart not of stone, but of flesh. Galatians 3.21, in the law, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If there was a law that could have made the Israelites alive, if God could have spoken a law, they could have heard it and said, yes, that is inspiring. I will then do the law. Then righteousness would have been by the law, but the law can't do that. It is powerless to make you alive. That is only what grace by Jesus Christ can do for you. But that reaffirms that now, because he has worked in us, we keep the law. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me, and he who loves me as, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me continuously. In John 14, 15, 16, and 17, that refrain rings true. If you love me, you will remain in me. If you remain in me, you keep my commandments. Is this something that we then pony up in ourselves that we just make happen? No, at the very beginning of John's gospel, in his prologue, stating explicitly what it is that he is doing, he says this in verses 12 and 14. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, notice the, the living imagery, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is not because of your will that you're made alive. It's not because you've heard of Jesus and all of a sudden, poof, you believe. It is because God has spoken to you. He has made the light of the glory of Jesus Christ shine in your heart and you believe. He has made you alive. So you can keep what he commands you to do. You can grow in holiness and righteousness before God. But you cannot do it under the law. No one, by their own good works, makes themselves right with God. It is only by grace, and that grace is only activated through faith in Jesus Christ, that he has freed you from your sins on the cross, he has been risen from the grave in vindication, and that by believing in him, God will make you right. This is what the law cannot do, but what Christ has done. And therefore, by believing in him, all of the blessings that we've talked about are poured out. No longer are we in that cursed state, but God has reaffirmed that he will remake Eden and he has given us all of those blessings. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has dumped out heaven upon you to give you blessings. The unprecedented blessings that he promised to Israel were but a blemish, a, a, a flickering light of the blessings that he was going to pour out upon his people in reality and in truth. And Paul says that has happened to you because of Jesus Christ's obedience and your faith in him. You not only are made alive, but you are entering into blessedness. There is nothing but good for you here. What the law cannot do, our Lord has done. We have no need to fear the curses of men. Men are feeble and weak. What can they do? That's not to say that curses are simply superstitious junk, that curses don't exist, that they don't linger over people. Simply to say that man cannot curse us above what God has already cursed us. You are cursed outside of Christ. You don't need a man to curse you to know that. You don't need a witch doctor to tell you that. You are cursed before God. That being so, then, even more so, in Christ, if God has lifted the curse from us, whom have we to fear? If you don't know Christ, know him today. You are under a curse. Either, either you don't believe in the clear and abiding evidence that this world is majorly messed up in sin and that people, regardless of how good they try to be, are stuck in their own sin and unable to be right before God. If you don't know that from your own experience and you don't know it from the teaching of history, simply look around the world at you. It's easy to think that you're better than everybody, but you are very, very non-introspective if you believe that. Either you think that you keep the commandments of God and therefore you are out of the curse or you think that there's not a curse but both of those are foolish. If you are in the curse, you cannot get out on your own. You need to trust in Christ and in him alone. What Adam has done giving us flesh that knows only sin, Christ our Lord has undone, providing righteousness for sin and life for death. Therefore, we have every blessing of heaven in him and in him alone. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we know that it is only by Christ 
his obedience, his righteousness, his graciousness to us. The provision of atonement for our sins. The provision of the Spirit for our sanctification and justification. That we can be made right with you. No matter how hard we try, Father, we are not made right with you by the law, by the works of our hands, but only by the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Convince us of that today. That we might live lives that glory in Jesus Christ, that glory in his sacrifice on the cross, that demonstrate that he alone is worthy of praise and honor and glory in the world. Make much of him and make little of us, for it is only in Christ alone that we might live before you. Give strength to our voices as we sing in praise to our Lord. Amen.